This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. At the end of 2019, as I looked into the new year, I wanted to preach Titus and I wanted to preach 2 Corinthians. And I made other tentative plans as well, uh, primarily for the evening service too. I'm taking us somewhere in the Old Testament. And of course, uh, most of the plans this year have had to be shelved. But I'm glad to say that back at the start of the year when we were still meeting in person, we worked through the book of Titus and you can still listen to that on our website, edengrove.org. And eventually we did get to 2 Corinthians, uh, which we started at the beginning of September and by the grace of God will we'll lead us up to Christmas. Uh, so folks, I hope you're blessed by it. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're challenged by it uh, as we work our way through this letter. It's 2 Corinthians 5 today, into chapter 6. That's what we're going to be looking at. And we're beginning at verse 11. So 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 11. And this is the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, 
by great endurance. In afflictions and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Amen. And we thank God today for his word. In the past week, I read an article written by a young man who had been wise with his money and had already begun saving into a pension pot. His hope, his attitude, his vision for the future was that by the time he reached 55, he would be able to retire on a wonderful pension and accomplish all of the big plans and dreams and aspirations he has had since a child. Now I, like you, pay into a pension pot. We have our pension pot with the government and most of us now have a pension pot with our employer. But probably not as many of us as that young man are, are suitably envisioned to look to the future and to plan monthly to give more and more and more so all our dreams come true. But let me ask you today, what is it that drives you? Maybe you are like that young man and what drives you is that dream of walking out of your place of employment at 55 and never have to look back. Maybe what drives you is simply you long for a bit of peace. Do you remember the poem we used to recite in school? I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin builder of clay and wattles made and I will have some peace there for peace comes dropping slow, dropping slow in the bee loud glade or something or other. Is that John Lennon or Karl Marx? Who knows? Maybe you're just longing for a bit of peace. Maybe you just want to retire early. Maybe, do you know what? You haven't even thought about tomorrow, never mind the next 30 years. But humor me for a wee second. What is it that drives you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that causes you to do the things that you do? Today, as we look at this passage, we can say that we know what it is that drives Paul. He says, is this passage begins in chapter 5 verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others we've already spoken in this series about how Paul is a minister of the new covenant he preaches the gospel of grace he stands and proclaims that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone 
There is no other gospel. There is no other way to be saved. We must come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance or faith or we will be lost eternally. This is what the gospel is for Paul and this is what he preaches. He knows the fear of the Lord and therefore he spends his days persuading others. Often when we speak of the fear of the Lord, it sounds a bit antiquated. It sounds like something that maybe your granny's minister back in 1932 used to talk about, but certainly you don't want to hear anything like that now. After all, the God of the Old Testament, he's the big scary one, but the God of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, well, he is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. My friends, if you believe that, then you have believed a lie. You have believed nonsense. The God of the old is the God of the new. We trust in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't begin at Christmas. Jesus is eternal. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of the fear of the Lord? Is it an antiquated phrase? Is it something to do with how God is different, apparently, in both Testaments? Not a bit of it. We speak today about the fear of the Lord alongside the apostle. It is still relevant. It is not out of date. And it is what drives Paul in his effort towards persuading others about their need of Christ. The commentator Charles Hodge puts it this way about the fear of the Lord. He says the fear of the Lord is that fear or reverence which the Lord excites or of which he is the object. Let's break it down a wee bit. What does he mean? The fear of the Lord is that fear or reverence which the Lord excites. Or in other words, when we come to know the Lord, which is a supernatural work of God in our lives, when we come to know the Lord, he excites in us a reverence for the things of God. He excites in us by the working of the Holy Spirit, a reverence for the things of God, which previously we had no time for. I remember when I was a young man not wanting anything to do with the things of God. Although my parents sent me along to church and Sunday school and all the rest, I went with feet that I dragged all the way there. I didn't want it. And then comes that moment where the Lord works in my life. He draws me to himself. He opens my eyes. He causes me to see my need of Jesus. I call upon him. I repent of my sins. I am saved. And then suddenly there is a difference. Suddenly there is a hunger for the things of God. Charles Hodge says this is the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord or that fear which the Lord himself excites. So as the Lord works on us, our eyes are opened and we see his glory, we see his beauty. And so we grow to fear him and to love him and to know him. And as Hodge continues, he says, the fear of the Lord is that which he is the object. So we look to the Lord. We know what he's about. He is the object of our love. He is the object of our affection. He is the object of our praise. To fear the Lord is to know him. It is to love him. It is to trust him. It is, as the Proverbs write in chapter 9 and verse 10 of that book, it is the beginning of wisdom. And it is not the fear that a servant has for their master. We call that a servile fear. It is the fear that a child has for their parent. We call that a filial fear. This is the fear of the Lord. 
We seek to honour the Lord in all that we do and say. We seek to love him and know him. We, we seek to obey him in our day-to-day walk. And therefore, says Paul, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's what drives the apostle. That's what gets him out of bed. That's what causes him to, to go through all the hardships. And we will see them again in today's passage. All the nonsense, all the trouble, all the strife. He keeps going, knowing the fear of the Lord, to persuade others about their need of Christ. And he says here, as verse 11 continues, what we are is known to God. And I hope it is also known to your conscience. We've talked already in this book and we will talk again about that strained relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. He speaks to these men and women and he says, I hope you know what we are about. I hope that what we are about is known to your conscience. We're not those, he says in verse 12, who are commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. See, there's the focus of Paul's ministry. We have heard again in this passage and in this letter that Paul in public didn't look like much. I quoted a few weeks ago about how they they said he had one big eyebrow and he was bow-legged and a wee bald head. And I'll not go too much further because as I speak, it feels like I'm describing myself. He didn't look like much. His outward appearance wasn't too good. And it is argued and said that when it came to the, the great preachers that came through Corinth, then Paul wasn't up there on the list. Perhaps Paul was a man that didn't look like much and he didn't sound like much. But he writes to these men and women and says, look, it is the fear of the Lord that caused me to come and to worship and to to praise and to preach in your presence. It is the fear of the Lord that drove me to the work in Corinth. You know that in your conscience and so you can answer those who want to boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, or in other words, if it seems to you that we have lost our minds, it is for God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. Here's what drives the apostle every single day. The fear of the Lord. Living every day for the sake of the Lord and his bride, the church. For, says Paul in verse 14, It is the love of Christ which controls us or or compels us. It is the love of Christ that causes us to go through all that we go through and to preach to you Christ and him crucified. Wouldn't it be wonderful, my friends, if in all of these days of doom and gloom and lockdowns or Dare I say it, not a lockdown, a a circuit breaker. Do they think we came up the lagging in a bubble? It's another lockdown. And in these days where all we talk about is negative, imagine if these were days where the Lord working in us, growing us up, sanctifying his children every single day. Imagine if we came to the conclusion that, you know what, how we will be driven in these days of pandemic is by the love of Christ compelling us 
the love of Christ driving us forward, giving little to no regard of a future pension pot, but instead living in the here and now with the love of Christ being our defining characteristic. Paul says, this is what controls us. This is what compels us because we have reached this conclusion, verse 14, the second part of the verse, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. One has died for all and therefore all have died. It is Jesus here who Paul is speaking about. He is the one who died for the sins of his people. Verse 15, he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's the gospel. Here's this driving force of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the fear of the Lord that causes Paul to persuade others. It is the love of Christ that causes Paul to compel others, to drive him once more to the cool face of gospel ministry. Because Paul's conclusion is that there is nothing greater or more wondrous than the good news that Christ died for the ungodly. We read that in the book of Romans. In Romans 5 and 18, we know that in Adam all sinned, and so too in Christ all have died. Christ's death is our death. His life is our life. And Paul would tell the Galatians this very thing. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My brothers and sisters, do you see the remarkable transformation that has taken place in the life of the believer? No longer needing to wonder, what have I to live for? What do I get out of bed for this morning? I've lost half my pension. COVID's on my back. It's all doom and gloom, all dark clouds and negativity. What is it that drives me? The fear of the Lord. The filial fear of the Lord. Knowing him and loving him and trusting him and seeking each day to live for him because we have reached the same conclusion as the apostle that there is nothing more glorious than the gospel that says one has died for all and just as in Christ we have died so in Christ we live and our hope is secure for eternal future that lies in front of us. Here's the truth. And my brothers and sisters, I don't expect you to jump up and down off the sofa this morning. I, I know things are difficult in, in these moments, in this day and age, but I pray that you will catch a wee glimpse of this and may there be a smile that creeps on your face or a smile that creeps over your soul which remembers that what Christ has done for us cannot be revoked. He does not put us on a further lockdown. Because in Jesus, we are utterly secure. Paul says from now on, verse 16, because of all these wonderful truths that I have just verbalized to you in Corinth, because of all of this, we therefore regard no one according to the flesh. 
We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we don't regard him this way anymore. Paul speaks here of, of how he viewed people and viewed situations back in the day when Paul was Saul. He regarded even Jesus according to the flesh. And we're all still like that in, in some respects. We make judgments every single day on, on the people we see or, or the things that are in front of us. We are naturally inclined that way to, to make snap judgments. I was listening to a podcast not so long ago where the guy was saying what COVID has taught him is, is to trust his gut feeling. He has a gut feeling when he looks at someone or reads something or hears something and he, and he trusts his gut. But there I say it, that's a fleshy way to judge and to regard anyone or anything. Paul says, I don't do that anymore. I don't judge anyone based on how they look. I don't judge anyone on, on the quality or content of their sermon. His critics were doing this. But Paul says, we, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we don't do it anymore. Our standards are not the standards of this world because we know, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Here is the dramatic change in the life of the believer. Here is the wonderful, dramatic, significant, eternal change in the life of of the believer the old has gone and the new has arrived paul has already told us in this letter the, the 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 what we should look for in this new birth he has told us that when we come to know jesus our eyes are opened up the the veil is lifted away only christ can remove that veil and with those opened eyes for the first time, we recognize Jesus as he truly is. We no longer judge him according to the flesh, but instead we, we look to him and we see him as our savior and we receive him by faith. And we know that no one or nothing compares to this same Jesus. And he's already told us that, that we are like tents and jars of clay. We are passing away. We are perishing every day. Every day physically we are wasting away. But because of Jesus, every day we are being renewed or the big word sanctified. Every day the spirit is at work and he is equipping us for heaven. He is shaping us into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is our hope. Here is what it means to be a believer. The old is gone and the new has come. And we have that wonderful hope of heaven. We know, as Paul says, if we are absent from the body, then we are at home with the Lord. One day is coming where we will take off this mortal tent and we will go home to the many mansions of glory. We will swap canvas for bricks and mortar built by Christ himself. This is our eternal home. And we know that one day when Jesus comes back, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But the Christian in that day has no fear. The Christian knows on that day they will stand because they have received Jesus Christ by faith. The old has gone and the new has come. Thanks be to God in these days of COVID that it hasn't robbed us of our hope. 
In the darkness of these days, COVID has not robbed from us the gospel, the message that everything is radically, significantly different for the one who has trusted Christ. Paul has already made the difference between the old covenant and the new. And Paul makes it clear again here, this is not something that the law could do. The letter kills, but the gospel of grace does this. Preached, the spirit moves, and sinners come to know Jesus as their saviour. The old is gone, but the new has come. Now we know that that work on this side of glory is not complete. We know as the Reformation cry went out that we are simul just et peccator. We are at the same time simultaneously justified but also sinful. That's the Christian walk. Every single day we will trip, we will stumble, we will fall. Sin is that constant enemy. We are at the same time just and sinful. But the old has gone. Christ has paid for our sin. And if we are right in saying, as I believe we are, that justification is a declaration by God himself, a forensic act where God declares us to be justified, righteous in his sight, he does not remove that declaration from us. The old is gone and the new has come. It is amazing news. It is good news. It is the gospel news. And who do we look to pat on the back for such wonderful, joyous news as this? It's certainly not ourselves. Salvation is all of God. If anyone is to come to know Christ as their saviour, the glory belongs only to the Lord. You do not get a pat on the back for reaching over to the other half. Jesus has done a bit, you do the next bit. That's not the way it works. You do not get anywhere because you think, well, I have done lots of good things. I am full of righteous acts and works. The Lord will surely reward me. That's not how it works. Salvation is all of God and it is all of grace. And as Paul says in verse 18, all of this, all of this, men and women like us, once dead in sin, but now new creations. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the good news again. The ministry of reconciliation given to us by God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciliation can sometimes be a dirty word. Sometimes we have proclaimed with great sin, if he crawled up the street on broken glass on his hands and knees going through fire, I still would not forgive him. I don't do forgiveness. We've talked like that sometimes, haven't we? Even to this day, perhaps we, we will not forgive that person, that individual, that, that individual even in our own church fellowship. We say, no, I'll never forgive. But when we say that, we lose sight of the fact that the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. God reconciling himself to us. We didn't do it. We didn't do it. Paul says, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, trusting to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that says guilty sinners who are far from God, who are under his wrath, who are heading to a war, towards a lost eternity, men and women like that through faith in Christ can be reconciled to God. The enemies of God can become members of God's family. Those who deserve punishment can be recipients of grace. Here is the gospel of reconciliation and all of it is from God who in Christ reconciled us to himself. Now isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just unspeakably glorious? Now I know in Northern Ireland we've heard that before. We've heard that time and time and time again. I would never dream of standing in Balnehintz saying, oh, we're, we're the only church in Balnehintz. We're the only ones that preach the gospel. It would be nonsense. It is preached through this town. We have heard it. It's written on our wayside pulpits. Little wee men at, at market day give us, give us tracts to, to hand out and to read. We know the gospel, but isn't it glorious? Isn't it wonderful? These days of lockdown too, and, and part three will probably come, Michelle O'Neill's revenge, whatever we call it, isn't it wonderful to focus again on the gospel, to focus again on the God of reconciliation, to focus again on the fact that we deserve nothing and the Lord has given us everything? No wonder, Paul says, it is the fear of the Lord that drives me. The love of Christ compels me. Here's what puts fire in our bellies in these sad and dismal days going into the winter and this pandemic still hangs over us like a bad smell. The gospel, the good news, the good news compels us. Child of God, may you focus on it today, meditate upon it, receive it again and, and delight in it and, and cherish it in your hands like you are holding a newborn baby. It is the gospel that gives you hope. Not your pension pot, as big as it may be. Not the long beach with the, the woman beside you, as gorgeous as she may be. Not any of those dreams that we hold somewhere in our head. One day I'll be an artist. One day I'll walk the length of America. One day I'll have my dream car. One day, one day, one day. The gospel is here today. And through the work of God in our lives, the old is gone. And the new has come. Thanks be to God. Paul has said here twice that he has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And therefore he says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's as if the Lord is, is this great king and he sends from his embassy his ambassadors into this world to, to make the case for him. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, God making his appeal through us. And look what he says. Paul could take a moment here to, to justify his looks. He could say, well, my mother wasn't a good looking woman and my dad was a rough old lad. That's, that's why I look rough. That's why these guys criticize me. And I didn't go to preaching school and I'm not a wonderful preacher. And that's why these guys criticize me. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Such 
emotive language. We implore you, says Paul, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if you never have really understood what the gospel is, then I commend 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 to you because in it, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Lord, writes a wonderful, pithy definition of the gospel. For our sake, he says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the gospel. For our sake, Christ died. For our sake, Christ rose again from the dead. How did God do it? Christ was made to be sin. He knew none himself. He was sinless and spotless and true. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, goes and dies and rises from the tomb for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be justified and clothed with a righteousness that is not our own for our sake. Here is the gospel. And my friends, today, I implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I implore you today to hear once more the gospel of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. I implore you to consider today your need of Jesus. And I know you might be thinking, pension plan, end of lockdown, what will I do next? Where will I go on holidays next year? Will there be holidays next year? I know you consider all of these things. We all do. But I implore you, if you do not know Jesus, there is nothing more vitally important than knowing Jesus. You must be born again. You must be saved. You must receive this Christ. Or you will know the torment and the punishments of eternal hell. I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As chapter 6 begins, Paul urges, that none of us would receive the grace of God in vain. What does he mean? Well, we receive the grace of God in vain when we hear the gospel preached every single week. We receive the grace of God in vain when we hear that gospel preached and yet willfully, deliberately ignore it. We receive the grace of God in vain when we hear it outlined, the, the terrors of, of the cross, the horror of that day. We receive the grace of God in vain when we hear that by his grace, we hear that and yet we decide it's not for me. It's irrelevant. It's, it's boring. It's disinteresting. I don't need to hear it. My children don't need to hear it. We're not that kind of people. We receive the grace of God in vain when we hear the glory of the gospel but decide no. No, I will not believe. I will not receive Jesus. I will not repent. I will not bend the knee. And what is the grand thing we like to say sometimes? I'd rather reign in hell than be a slave in heaven or words to that effect. My friends, what utter foolish tripe and nonsense that is. If you think 
that hell is going to be this one long eternal party and you will be in charge or certainly at the table. Oh, what a fool you are. It's not you in charge of hell. It's not Satan who's in charge of hell. But it is God. And the wrath of God is a terrible thing and it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. My friends, understand this and do not receive the grace of God in vain. You've heard me today outlining this gospel. I have made it plain as I can. I have told you that Christ died for sinners and was raised for our justification. And so today, if you would not receive it in vain, then repent and believe the gospel. I promise you, there's nothing more pressing and there's nothing more wonderful than the good news. In a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time and behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, do not receive God's grace today in vain. Nothing in this world has ever been more significant than the, the impact of Calvary all those years ago. Believe today and be saved. Paul preached this gospel. Paul could say in chapter 6 and verse 3, that he put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with his ministry. As servants of God, he says in verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way. I wrote in a devotion recently that I always struggle with those verses. I am well aware of my faults and feelings and mistakes. And I pray today that if Anyone that knows me has heard this message today and thinks, ah, but you're a hypocrite and you're this and you're that and you're the other thing. And my friends, please forgive me. I am at the same time justified, yet I am a sinner. And if I have put any obstacle in your way, please show me grace and mercy and forgiveness. Please forgive me. And may you receive Christ as your saviour. Paul could say, you will find no fault with my ministry. And as the Corinthians considered him, they considered a man who was in affliction and hardship and calamity, who was beaten and imprisoned and forced to endure riots and labours and sleepless nights and hunger. But he did so, according to verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, by truthful speech, verse 7, by the power of God and with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. What were these weapons? Well, we remember Ephesians 6. Paul put on the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord. Here are the weapons that he took up. Knowing both sides of the coin. Verse 8, he went through people who honoured him and those who dishonoured him. Those who slandered him and those who praised him. Those who treated him as an imposter and yet he was true. Those who didn't know him and yet those who knew him well. As a dying man yet but one 
who lived, as one who was punished and yet not killed. Verse 10, as one who sorrowed but always rejoiced, as poor yet made many rich, and as one who had nothing yet possessed everything. Here is Paul's ministry. Here is the life that was driven by the fear of the Lord. Here is the man who was compelled by the love of Christ to preach the gospel. And here is today how we finish. Paul writes to the church, a church who have caused him difficulty, but a church whom he loves. In verse 11 he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our heart is wide open. What a wonderful phrase. Here is a man driven by the fear of the Lord who loves and delights in the church of Jesus Christ. To you, our heart is open wide. But I always find the next verses sometimes sad, quite emotive. Paul says in verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, verse 13. Widen your hearts also. See, Paul was an apostle. Of that, there's no doubt. And at times, as we consider the lives of the apostles, we can place them way up there on the pedestal. They are supermen, men who, who I'm sure never worried, men who never doubted, men who never uh, felt the sting of the attacks verbally, physically, men who were always floating on cloud nine, but it's simply not true. Was Paul always a man who, after a sleepless night, was on the top of the world looking down on creation as the carpenters once sang? Was he always a man who, under beatings and imprisonments, was saying to himself, oh, do you know what, this is amazing? Or were there days of weakness for him? I see it, think and suspect we see a little bit of it here. What does he say to these Corinthians, to his spiritual children? Love me a wee bit more, would you? Widen your heart to us as our heart is wide open to you. My friends, as Christians today, who are called to engage in this ministry of reconciliation, as men and women today who understand that being a Christian is not this walk that's constantly wonderful, it is simul just at Peter, at the same time justified yet sinful. We know that the walk is long and hard and tough. But the fear of the Lord drives us. The love of Christ compels us. The glory of the gospel thrills us. And as we engage in that ministry, as we seek to reach into a world that is perishing, where men and women all around us day by day receive the grace of God in vain, how can we engage in this work? How can we engage in these labours? Well, yes, with the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord. But how else do we do it? Well, quite simply, 
by being people and men and women of faith who encourage one another, who love one another, who forgive one another, and whose hearts are wide open to one another. Why should this be the case? Because we are men and women who fear the Lord.